Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. These are their stories. I am your host, Christopher Heaton. Being a physician can be a rewarding career, helping people improve their lives, helping them become healthier, and helping them improve their quality of life. Now, due to the expertise and commitment of years to the profession, physicians remain a highly respected and highly compensated career choice. But as we always say, medicine's a calling, not really a career for those wanting to become a doctor and care for people. It's also a career in which you're most likely to take your own life. as a downside to helping others with their issues and problems. Physicians are supposed to be the closest thing we have to superheroes, and many are, but what happens when doctors become too stressed, too depressed, or lose their passion for medicine? Who can they turn to for help, and why do so many doctors in our country choose to take their own lives instead of risking the appearance of weakness and asking for help? Dr. Marion Mass, pediatrician, writer, champion of patient care, and founder of the Practicing Physicians of America, is back with us as we discuss who helps heal the healers and the taboo subject of physician suicide. One of the potential solutions before burnout gets too bad or before moral injury gets too bad is really all of us watching out for each other. And I think that's one of the things that maybe physicians are missing. And if it's not there for us in institutions, we need to create it ourselves among each other. I want to do an additional episode with you because of some of the things we touched upon when we were chatting in the previous episode. Uh, mainly the lack of control of care decisions and how this is tragically manifesting itself in medical students, residents, and experienced physicians once they realize that medicine and healthcare might not be uh, what is the present day, what they thought it would be. And, you know, you've mentioned that you blame yourself and you blame a lot of other physicians for relinquishing control of medicine. Why is that? I think there's several reasons. I think that when you're the culture of training in and of itself, we're supposed to get our job done. You know, it's a, it's a pyramid scenario for many people. And so they're just told you have to do X and Y and Z. And, you know, it, most of the people who went into medicine are, were the pleasers, you know, were the people that we got all the A's in high school and college. And, you yeah. know, we were busy and dutifully writing everything up so that, you know, we were making sure that our records were squeaky clean. So we don't step out of line, right? Right. And then over time, as corporate control grew, <laughs> metastasized, others were in charge of us. And then when we have stepped out of line, there's, there's an awful lot of labeling of physicians nowadays. You know, people are called disruptive physicians. I think that's a terrible term because, you know, it's really not about us. It's about the patients. I would use the term disruptors of patient care and put it on the landscape of medicine and say, well, who's disrupting the care here, right. because that's what's important. So a combination of us being dutiful people, rule followers, and the corporates having the power. And then, you know, as we mentioned in the last episode, in addition to the corporates having the power and money, physicians have been saddled with more and more debt. So then you have a job. And if you're employed in that job, it's really hard for you to speak out because if you do, you might lose that job and then you've lost your source for paying back those loans and that's a problem. 
So that's, so, I think that's how we lost. Sure. Yeah. A lot of factors go into that. You just said, um, you know, you just ended with really what I call the addiction to salary when people think that job security is a paycheck and you could get the call tomorrow and that job and that paycheck is gone. And then what are you going to do? It's the massive amount of debt coming out of medical school. It's the hospital and, and corporate executives saying, doctor, you don't know anything about business. And most physicians have had what? I think it's like five hours of business education through undergraduate and graduate school and all the way up. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there to kind of build the confidence uh, that a lot of physicians have and they can stand up to a lot of those hospital executives and admins that say, you don't know what you're doing, just go see patients, we're going to take care of everything else. And then it seems like something that didn't happen overnight. It was a slow kind of trickle that built into a uh, a waterfall as it carved away the canyon there. So what were some of the clues through your experience and through your career talking to colleagues? What are some of the clues that doctors weren't calling the shots anymore? I'll give you a perfect example. So when EHR rolled out, a lot of us looked at the electronic health record and we're like, wait, this is crazy. This is not, this is not user-friendly. This is not built for us. It also wasn't built for the patient. The EHR was built for the people that are making money off of healthcare, the employers of physicians who are going to be billing big, and then the insurance companies, and then the people who are collecting the data, which is why we have the whole EHR you know, system in the first place, really. Mm-hmm. But when EHR rolled out, I so clearly remember I was, um, I was employed at the time in a community hospital, and we would have all of these meetings, you know, the house staff meetings, and they would talk about the updates of the EHR. And I was really fascinated. I was one of the very few people speaking up. And I would raise my hand. I would say, look, this is not going to work because X, Y, and Z. And people just said the same thing again and again. Administrators would say, oh, well, this is the wave of the future. Just get used to it. And other physicians, for various reasons, you know, new young physicians weren't going to step out of line. There were few physicians like me who would speak up. I think by and large, you know, for the reasons I described, you know, we tend to be docile, we tend to be rule followers. And then the older physicians, and I don't mean to lay blame on any one group, but I think they thought for many years, uh, it'll never happen to us that, that, that we're pushed out of medicine. We will always be needed. And I hear a lot of almost regret in their voice when you meet physicians that are maybe like 55, 65, that age range. I hear regret, like we should have done something earlier. But I, when I spoke up, I was just told, you know, oh, it's too bad. This is the wave of the future. And then we end up with a system that doesn't work for the patient. I remember very clearly when we first got computer order entry, a patient that looked septic, a baby, a three-month-old baby, looked septic, needed antibiotics, and there was a, an issue because the computer interface wasn't working with the pharmacy and the patient waited three hours. And I'm like, I flipped the lid and I called up the pharmacy and, you know, you need, you can mix this medication up. I want it in 10 minutes. Well, we're not allowed to because administration says everything's supposed to go through the computer interface. And Jeez. quite frankly, what I did was I said to the pharmacist, I'm going to go to the nurse manager who's on right now. And I'm going to tell them that the medication gets here in 10 minutes or she can call the hospital CEO and tell the hospital CEO that I'm walking into the patient's room, telling them exactly what's happening and telling them that an administrator is getting in the way of good patient care and I suggest they should call the press and I'll give them the number. I had my medication in 10 minutes. But no one wants Jeez. to push it like that. No one wants to push it. And I, it's funny, I had done another podcast recently and someone said, they called me fearless, which is a great 
um, you know, the big, big compliment. But I just think that if all of us speak for the patient, we really shouldn't have anything to fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why should we? Yeah, and, and you use the term disruptive, um, you know, disruptive physician before somebody trying to change the status quo. And I agree with you that I don't, I don't like that term whatsoever. It's more of an actual patient advocate. You know, we see that more and more out of the non-primary care sense where physicians can't go out and, you know, really put their best effort forward to take care of somebody like that. And, and it's, it's kind of sad because other people are stepping in to fill those roles. So I think a lot of these factors you describe leads to what we're seeing as increasing job dissatisfaction and, and even depression amongst the physician community. Do you think these things play a factor in that? Of course they do. Absolutely they do. And, you know, going back to that little bit of sheepishness I see with the older physicians, I think one of the, the things, one of the phenomena that happens when you have to walk into a patient's room and say to them, hey, I tried everything I could. I couldn't, I couldn't get the prior auth for you to get your CAT scan, and I know you need it. Or, oh, this is the medication that you're going to have to take. I know we talked about that other one, but it's not on the formulary, so it's not covered, and I can't really choose what medications. It's the PBMs who decide what goes on the formulary, and they get paid by pharma, of course. You know, when, when you're the one that has the training, four years at Penn State, four years at Duke Med, three years training at Northwestern and I have to go tell a patient I can't get them what they need, but, oh, (laughs) you know, the IT guy, he's going to tell you, so sorry, I can't get you your medication. (laughs) Like, no, it's almost, I think it's almost embarrassing for you to have to face the patient to say, oh, I have all this fancy training, but I can't get you what you need, even though I know you need it and you know you need it and other people know you need it, but too bad, you know, can't do anything. That's when the term disruptive physician, well, you know what? Our system needs disruption. Thank God there's people that are willing to be disruptive of a system. I just think we should recoin the term, you know, champions of excellent medical care. There and you go, champions, disrupt- advocates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I do think it is, physicians have talked about it for decades, like in the doctor's lounge to each other, calling each other on the phone, you know, in our stolen moments, calling residency mates, discussing it with our husbands or our wives if we happen to be married oh, yeah. to another physician, you know, our girlfriends or colleagues you know, wow, it's getting bad out there. And, but now in the last several years, there's so much more written about it. Some use the term burnout. I like the term that uh, Dr. Wendy Dean, she's another Pennsylvania physician, a psychiatrist from the Harrisburg area. And she has a foundation that's part of our free to care organization as well. She uses the term moral injury. And that's exactly what it is. You feel morally injured when you have to go tell the patient you can't give them what they need. Because you're the one that swore the, the oath. I mean, there's an oath behind me in my study here. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that Hippocratic oath, I mean, I take it seriously. A lot of doctors take it seriously. How many other professions, you know, do hospital administrators swear an oath? Do insurance company executives swear an oath? Do middlemen companies swear an oath? None of those people swear oaths. But when you do that, especially on top of all that training and you reach that point, I think it's really meaningful. and. If we're going to abide by that oath, we're going to have to start advocating for a better landscape for our patients so that they can access us at a reasonable cost and so they know the care that they're getting and they do get excellent medical care. So instead of just taking it and giving up and saying, well, kind of shrugging, this is the way it is and I can't do anything about it and I need to provide for my family and take the paycheck, so I'm just going to keep my head down, actually find the spine, get your backbone, get out there, 
advocate for the patient for the patient care. And, you know, a lot of people see doctors really like superheroes um, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, a lot of physicians are being laid off right now, which just doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, they they are seen as these larger in life figures. Obviously, they are some of the most intelligent, brightest, involved people in our communities, and rightfully so. But with everything we've talked about, how, you know, you mentioned burnout, and I, I don't like the word burnout either. I think burnout's it, it, it attaches a nice little label to what a lot of physicians are entering into more of a disease state or a mental illness state, um, really, and having physical, emotional, and, and mental um, repercussions there. But when doctors have personal and professional issues and they start to develop into more of what I've heard physicians describe as depression, you know, workplace depression, when those conditions are brushed off or internalized or left untreated, what do they do? What do you see in your colleagues when this happens? And, and what's the ultimate result of that? Well, um, unfortunately, like the, the worst ultimate result is suicide. And, you know, physicians are very tragically killing themselves roughly more than one a day in the United States. There's a wonderful film, Do No Harm, and the award-winning filmmaker Robin Simon, who has physicians in her family, uh, is the producer and director. And it was um, put together the brainchild of Pamela Weibel and uh, Jill Zeiger, both physicians. Almost every physician I know knows another physician who's committed suicide. I know of three personally. It's always tragic. One was in my medical school class. She took a break after first year and then she went back and she had graduated from residency. This is years ago. I think in retrospect, she suffered from depression and was it was either inadequately treated or untreated. I don't know which, but she mm -hmm. killed herself right at the end of residency. And I think there's probably an issue of, there's an issue of stigma in mental health anyway. You know, if you, you look at all people that suffer from depression, a lot of them put off getting help and getting treatment because there's this stigma of, okay, it's a weakness if you're depressed. It's yeah. a weakness if you're anxious. So there's the stigma regardless. And then the stigma it is a little bit worse probably for physicians because we're the ones that are supposed to have the answers, right? Correct. Another um, was a colleague that I knew of that wasn't really called a suicide. I think the parents didn't want it known that it was. And that brings another, another point um, that we have to keep in mind. There's probably a higher rate of suicide among physicians than we suspect. And that's because uh, some of it is not termed suicide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people keep it covered because they're your back at the stigma. I'm going to give one last example. Um, you know, it's a bimodal curve for the physician suicide. It's the younger ones killing themselves. And it's people that are either close to retirement or older edge of the curve. And I, I can't, you know, I think all of those, all of the instances, there's probably personal issues beneath everything. So you'd have to look case by case. But I certainly think medicine was always a hard job. And then not being able to get help when you feel depressed and being hopeless is going to add to it. Um, the third suicide, I'll describe it, um, because when we showed the film Do no, Do no Harm here in our county for our county medical society, there was someone on the panel afterwards that was the younger partner of an older physician who had killed himself. And the family was very forthright in explaining what had happened, and the practice was very forthright. And it was a surprise to everyone. I had known him 
from the time that I worked at a previous hospital. Wonderful guy, wonderful to his patients. And the really sad part was, was that when the partner described what had happened, he of course then had twice as many patients to see because he had lost mm -hmm. his partner suddenly. The hospital did try to get him some help, which was wonderful, but he said he had multiple patients calling up very angry because they couldn't access a physician. And they all knew that this physician had committed suicide. So now they're putting more stress on an already difficult job that's been made more difficult by his partner questioning, did I not see what happened here? Sure. And as the partner described, when you're a family physician, you do a lot of counseling for people's anxiety and depression because it's hard to get into a psychiatrist. They're, they're in really hot demand. Yeah. And so when you're doing all that, think about every patient that he had counseled. Are those patients then questioning his advice? Because he couldn't get through his own depression. Well, I'll give you something positive after, uh, after that. Part of the Free to Care Network is a group called Hope for Docs. It's run by a young psychiatrist, Dr. Marnie McGrath. And the idea is, is that Physicians are able to get confidential psychiatric care when they feel depressed, anxious, burned out, tired, even if they just need like a one-time uh, something that goes on. Um, she has a, an innovative model there, and it's really wonderful. I mean, it, I think the idea for us to say that, oh, just cover everyone's care doesn't help as much as physicians helping each other. And one of the potential solutions before burnout gets too bad or before moral injury gets too bad is really all of us watching out for each other. I guess I'll tell two more really positive stories. I remember in med school, I had a positive needle stick. With the, it was a HIV positive patient, and I stuck my left finger, left middle finger. I remember. I remember it was like yesterday. I can still oh, feel myself squeezing the blood out of my finger. But yeah. I, we had our, um, we had our advisory deans group meeting the next week, and I told my whole advisory deans group. And I got a lot of support, not just from my classmates, but my advisory dean invited me over to dinner, taught me how to make pesto, talked to me about life and life as a doctor and um, how I was proceeding with the needle stick and was I getting support. It just meant so much to me to have that support. And I think that's one of the things that maybe physicians are missing. And if, if it's not there for us in institutions, we need to create it ourselves among each other, watching out for each other, sending little texts each other, even if it's, hey, how are you? I just was thinking about you and wanted you to know. Very simple things. Having coffee with someone, checking in, having a conversation, making time to go shopping, inviting someone for dinner. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, and, you know, one thing is that physicians knowing, having such intimate knowledge of how the body works, if a doctor is determined to kill themselves, there's a pretty good chance they're going to succeed over, yeah, uh, we're, over we're other successful. types of... Yeah, we're much more successful at that than the general population, um, yeah. which is really sad. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love what you were saying about physicians need to support others because Freedom HealthWorks were coming from the direct care side, um, advocating for independent practices. But sometimes those practices can get a little lonely. You don't have the physician's lounge anymore. You don't have any water cooler talk. So being able to connect to other direct care practices, other like-minded physicians and organizations such as yours can be a very, very powerful support structure. And, you know, we've actually seen that uh, with a lot of our clients that they're able to talk to each other in, in monthly forums. And, and it's been really cool to see that evolution with people opening up. Again, 
you know, we've talked about trust before between a patient and a physician, but physicians have to trust their colleagues and their peers too. And I feel like a lot of times, whether it's through the corporate practice of medicine or through nonprofits, whatever that is, physicians are almost commoditized. They say that uh, anybody with a stethoscope around their neck and a white lab coat, they're good enough. And I just don't see as connected uh, you know, professionals in a, in a medical sense as you would think that they are. So do you find it tough when you talk to physicians? I mean, do you, do you come to the realization that there might not be as strong as a professional network there as, as a lot of people would think, or is it the opposite? Oh, I think there hasn't been for a while. I do think, um, I describe social media as a double-edged sword. I mean, there's, there's a lot of... Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of contention on social media, especially as we go through, uh, you know, social upheaval and, you know, justifiably so. But yeah. Um, yeah. social media is very flat, you know, like you can type comments or put up pictures or what have you, but it's a screen and you're missing the nuances of, you know, just you and I having a talk here. And actually we're even having it via video, although our listeners can't see that. So, you know, we're seeing facial expressions and you're noticing that I wave my hands a lot, you know, but I think that social media has brought more of us together and that's a good thing. And I, I also think that we are finding our voice when that happens. Um, I have long stated that one of the best balms for that moral injury is doing something about our situation. And I, I kind of joke to other physicians, like, look, people, you know, I have a lot of people say, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. And I, I say to them, you know, when you have some time, get in touch with me because you can do this too. I'm nothing special. I'm just like you are. I'm a physician. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm busy doing the things that I do. I just have a little more time than most. So I'm doing this advocacy. And when I get other people involved in advocacy work, uh, what, that's my actual favorite thing about what I do is convincing others. You can do this too. Um, I think that a lot of us suffer from, have you heard of the imposter syndrome? I want you to tell us about it. <laughs> okay. So I learned <laughs> about the imposter syndrome in, uh, in my first year of medical school. So I started med school as an MD PhD. I actually subsequently gave up the PhD fellowship because I fell in love with taking care of patients. But we had this amazing MD-PhD advisor. You know, this guy was a biochemist and he had a resume that was like 50 pages long and, you know, he ran a lab and he was like one of these amazing people that traveled the globe and gave lectures and all this other stuff. And the, the group of us, you know, the five of us and him were out to dinner one night and one of us said something along the lines of, yeah, you know, there's a lot of really smart people here. Sometimes I kind of wonder, do I belong here? And without a moment's hesitation, that advisor, this guy with the 50-page resume said, oh, the imposter syndrome. Everyone's got imposter syndrome. Just get used to it. Everyone feels like they're not smart enough. They don't belong. If they tell you that they don't have any of it, they're lying. And, you know, that was just like such a great thing to hear when I was young. And mm -hmm. I tell people the story all the time because it really is empowering. When you look around and you realize that everyone has moments when they feel like, they're not good enough. They don't belong. Their product isn't good enough. Maybe someone doesn't care what they have to say. Uh, maybe their idea doesn't have merit. When you realize that everyone feels that way, it makes it really easy to speak up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've noticed this wonderful metamorphosis with physicians that I will meet at a meeting or maybe we'll meet when we're doing some advocacy work in D.C. or state capital or maybe at a medical society meeting or even on the phone. and, and I'll convince people 
to start advocating for themselves and speaking up and they either call me back or I see it happen live. They say, you know, okay, you're going to lead this meeting, right? I'm like, I'm not going to lead it. You are, you've got this. You know, when you go, when you go to Washington, DC, you discover how much you're needed because they don't know what they're doing. This is why healthcare is such a mess. (laughs) And then it's just so brilliant when you see these people like, they're like a Phoenix rising from the ashes. And as light goes on, I have had dozens of people say to me, I am never not going to be involved again. I may have to change. It may have to ebb and flow with my life. You know, people get sick. People have family issues. Family members get sick. But once they, once they realize that their voice is needed and that they have expertise that they didn't think about that they had before, it's, it's just so beautiful to see that. And it is really a salve on the medical soul to take our Hippocratic Oath to its highest levels and advocate for our patients as agents of change for a better healthcare landscape of the future. It's a, it's a great message. It really is. And, and I know based on your experience, you've seen people's attitudes, you know, people as in, you know, fellow physicians, their attitudes completely turn around once they start to get involved um, in those type of efforts. So, you know, last question for you here. Um, based on all of your experiences, and, and again, I thank you for, for sharing some of those stories with us because those are very powerful, impactful stories and very sad stories too. But again, I think, I think a lot of people out there would totally understand those experiences of, of those people who decided to take their lives and they probably know a lot of stories um, of people around them. So anything you would tell uh, to other physicians or listeners out there that might have seen some warning signs from colleagues that they were thinking about taking their life and then kind of a follow-up question to that, you know, what can they do and what can physicians do to encourage peers to become more active and, you know, really whatever efforts that, that, that they want to pursue to help take back control of patient care? Absolutely. Um, so the first question, uh, you know, warning signs. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists could do this much better than me, but I, I always worry when someone goes silent. So I, I try to think of my, and right now, as we're saying it, I'm like, I'm going to write down about three people. I'm like, wait, why haven't I heard from them? And I'm going to, um, I'm going to check in on them and make sure that they're okay. <laughs> I'm literally writing this as we're talking. <laughs> um, I did one yesterday, a friend that I know is going through a tough time and a job transition. Um, so, so if someone goes silent, that's something to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. If someone was previously engaged and social and doing social things and now they're not, that's something to pay attention to. If someone's let go of their appearance or if you see like a big gate, weight gain or weight loss or, you know, we all know how to look for someone when they're tired, you know, you can see that they're tired. If you see any of that going on, just, you know, check in and, um, I, you know, just look for little clues of, of people saying things it's like, oh, it just doesn't matter. Oh, I can't do this anymore. I don't know how much longer I can go on. Check in with people. You know, I think there's, there's little subtle signs there. And um, be mindful, too, when people are going through changes. You know, look, life is happening outside of medicine. People have new babies, or maybe they have losses, or maybe they have miscarriages, or maybe they have infertility, or maybe they have a marriage that, that breaks up, or a relationship that breaks up, or... They lose a spouse, they lose a parent, they, God forbid, lose a sibling or a child. Those are times when everyone should be checked in on. And we're all vulnerable. So when those things happen, check in. I'm so grateful. Like, I've lost both my parents in the last five years. And it's very normal to lose your parents. I mean, it's supposed to happen, but it's still hard. And it was wonderful to have people that checked in on me. 
As far as that other part, how to get involved, well, <laughs> go, go to, if you're, a, if you're listening to this and you're a patient or a physician, go to free2care, F-R-E-E, the number two, and then care, and you will see the whole list of organizations that are part of the coalition. Patients can join Citizen Health. They can join Patients Rising Now. They can join Association of Mature American Citizens. Physicians, they can join, you know, my organization's Practicing Physicians of America. We'd love to have you. It's free membership. We'll, gi we'll give you emails. We'll give you opportunities. You'll know about events that happen before non-members will. Um, you could join uh, Physicians Working Together. You could join Physicians uh, for the Protection of Patients, P4P. Uh, there's, there's other organizations in there. You know, take a look, explore, find out about the organizations, and join something and then the next step would be, how could you get more involved? You know, in the last, um, last few weeks, I had two physicians contact me, uh, Frank and Jerry. <laughs> and uh, one is from Mississippi and one is from Louisiana. And they said, look, we want to get more involved and want to help with what you're doing. And what they did is they sort of pushed us into now Practicing Physicians of America is going to make state-based chapters and I want them to help organize the physicians in their state because, mm -hmm. you know, we've got a big database, a couple thousand physicians, but we need to start to organize them so that we're, we're giving them things to do and ways for them to become more involved. And there's so much to do. I mean, I wake up every day and I have a list like a whole sheet of paper long and I hope that I can get to at least a quarter of it. And then there's always more things coming. And uh, I've gotten better at delegating to others so that I'm not doing it myself. And even if you didn't feel as though you could come to a meeting you can participate in a meeting virtually. You can write op-eds. It's not that complicated. You know, you can start going to town halls and events in your community. Every, every physician, really every citizen out there should go to an event with their lawmakers and at least like hear them speak, ask questions if you have them, have some input, make a separate meeting if you feel like you need to or even if it's with your staff. I mean, there's so many ways you could get involved. And then once you do, most people feel like you said earlier on, Chris, how we're fragmented and then there's no more physician lounge and water cooler. When physicians do go to a meeting or interact with other physicians, they find that camaraderie again. It's like you're back in residency and it's, uh, it's another good feeling. Oh, that's great. That's great. And thank you for being a resource for everybody out there too. If anybody's listening, wants more information or uh, wants to be connected, please visit us at healthcareamericana.com and we'd be happy to help you out finding that finding that purpose and finding, uh, finding your tribe, uh, as we like to call it, and, and people that you can help out and people that can help you out at the same time. So Dr. Barry Mass, once again, thanks for joining us. Uh, we enjoyed our previous episodes so much and chatting with you that we had to have you back on. So Dr. Marion Mass, pediatrician, founder and vice president of the Practicing Physicians of America, writer, organizer, and a champion of excellent patient care. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. My great pleasure and honor. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.